Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This program is produced by 2SER 107.3 in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in association with the UTS Business School. And each week, we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. For the next two episodes, our gaze turns east to the often turbulent relationship between Australia and our largest trading partner, the People's Republic of China. Tensions in the last few weeks over Australia's vocal push for an independent inquiry into the origins and initial handling of COVID-19. But in terms of the economic relationship, China is still overwhelmingly our largest market and consumes 30.6% of our total exports, according to data released by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It's a delicate balance to strike indeed, but is brash megaphone diplomacy the right move? Are there alternatives to Chinese markets elsewhere in the world? And most importantly, how does Australia traverse the next few months as a middle power wedged between the twin axes of the United States and China? Joining me for part one of our two-part series is today's guests. Former Foreign Minister, New South Wales Premier and now Industry Professor at the University of Technology Sydney's Institute for Sustainable Futures and Business School, Professor Bob Carr. And joining Professor Carr is the Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute, Dr James Lawrenson. The big news at the moment is that China has levied a tax of 80% on Australian barley exports after an 18-month-long investigation into the dumping of barley into Chinese markets. Now, for barley exporters alone, industry data shows that China made up more than half of Australian barley exports in 2018-19. Now, along with that comes a ban on exports for four Australian abattoirs on apparent health and packaging infringements, potential problems with steel and thermal coal, and for Trade Minister Simon Birmingham and Agriculture Minister David Littleproud, the phone seems to effectively be off the hook for their Chinese counterparts. So Chinese officials have also reportedly drawn up a list of potential goods, including dairy, wine, seafood, uh, oatmeal, fruit, that may face stricter quality checks or tariffs if the political tensions don't ease. Now, David Littleproud has dismissed the idea that we're in the midst or on the precipice of a trade war with China. So to start off the discussion, what have both of your thoughts been on the last week in Australian-China relations? Well, from my perspective, it's been heavy on headlines and sound bites. Uh, it's been there's been less attention to facts and evidence, and I think that's a real drama. Uh, look, plainly, the last couple of weeks haven't been a good turn in the Australia-China trade relationship. Uh, but let's not catastrophize here at the same time. I mean, you mentioned Bali, $600 million of exports vulnerable. Now, some of that will find an alternative market. So the $600 million isn't going to be lost. Uh, you mentioned beef. Yes, four uh, processing facilities have been temporarily decertified, but they only account for about 20% of our beef exports. So 80% is going to China as normal. And the bigger backdrop, of course, is that our total exports to China are at record record highs, including in the first four months of this year when China put its own economy into lockdown. Yet despite that, the value of Australia's total exports to China actually increased in the first four months of this year over the same period last year. So look, I'm not trying to trivialise or downplay these issues. They're real and they are, they're not what we want, um, but let's not catastrophise as well. I think we should remind ourselves, uh, Max and James, that China's not alone in throwing around trade threats. What they've done 
on Bali is part of a review under the anti-dumping provisions that apply to all signatories to the WTO. Don't forget that America under Trump has raised tariffs on steel and aluminium in 2018. Uh, steel tariffs went up 25%, 10% on aluminium and followed up in January this year with tariffs on car parts and, and nails and electrical wires, products that were continuing to pour in as imports. Trump locked them out. Donald Trump said a little, little while ago that he wants tariffs on German cars so brutal that you won't see a Mercedes-Benz on Fifth Avenue. Um, and he's whacked up tariffs on, on India um, and uh, on Japan. Good, good American partners and allies have uh, not been immune and China has accused Australia of political manoeuvring regarding Australia's weeks-long lobbying for an independent review into the coronavirus outbreak. And on May 19th, the revised resolution, authored primarily by EU and Australian diplomats, passed the 73rd World Health Assembly in Geneva by consensus, and it was co-sponsored by a record number of countries. Now, there has been a great deal of talk since then about Australia's ability as a middle power to corral the world to its cause. Now, Mr Carr, in a tweet you published on May 16th, you said Australia is never a creative middle power. Now, what exactly makes a middle power creative in their diplomacy and our efforts in Geneva, are they worth celebrating? Yeah, Max, if you take, uh, if you take this issue of, of what Australia wants from China in response to the devastation caused by a virus that began, began in the markets of Wuhan, um, we, could have, we could have conducted quite diplomacy without going public. We could have reached out to our partners and friends, other American allies, particularly the Europeans, Japan, and asked what they wanted, what sort of inquiry, under what circumstances, what would be its mission and its scope. We could have, at the same time, firmly said to China, behind the scenes, always more desirable in these sensitive circumstances, um, we really think there's got to be a full accounting of what happened at Wuhan. It's in your interests. And it's in everyone else's interest. What sort of inquiry, what sort of analysis can we work up? What will you commit to? And again, we should have been very firm about it because there is a Chinese responsibility here. That's what I would have called creative diplomacy, coalition building. Instead, because the announcement of Australia's support for an inquiry followed three days on the Prime Minister's discussion, by phone with Donald Trump about this matter, it looked like we were only being America's deputy sheriff in Asia. Would it almost be an instance of being a sacrificial lamb? Well, it could well be, because what should concern Canberra, and according to a couple of reports is concerning them, is the prospect that if Australia is elbowed out of Chinese markets because of our forward-leaning and very public diplomacy, our megaphone diplomacy on this matter, but our place will be taken by America. America can move in, for example, and start exporting barley that we can't export to China. Another example would be as we've got four processing facilities for beef exports denied accreditation in China. The Chinese, according to some reports, have accredited scores of American abattoirs, making them able to export beef to China, whereas up till now, America has exported very little beef to China. Australia, Australia's got that market. So the irony is we could end up losing out 
to Chinese market through American exporters. And the irony of that, given our forward-leaning role undertaken to prove to America that, as always, we're the deputy sheriff, to use the term settled on by John Howard, by his failure to rule it out, it'd be very ironic indeed. On Sunday, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warned that the US will, and quote, simply disconnect from Australia if the Victorian government's Belt and Road deal with China affects telecommunication industries. And the Federal Labor Party, particularly Foreign Affairs spokesperson the Honourable Penny Wong, are concerned about the US-China trade deal signed in January this year that would see China purchase $80 billion worth of agricultural goods from the US over a two-year period, exactly as Professor Carr just said could occur. Now, are we reaching a point as a middle power where we must make the unenviable decision to pick a side between the United States and China? Otherwise, as you've just mentioned, Professor Carr, we could be left to the wayside. Uh, As a former foreign minister, you'd excuse me saying this, it's inevitable that, that I'd pick these words. Diplomacy enables us to have both relationships. A relationship with, uh, with our ally, the United States, and with our partner and, and friend, we call the relationship a comprehensive strategic partnership with China. And good diplomacy, the good choice of words on the right occasions, um, talking behind the scenes, candidly, uh, not always getting out that megaphone and not thinking we've only got one international personality, that is, as America's deputy, um, should enable us, without, without too much sophistication, to get away with good relations with both. I think the Japanese, as uh, take the example of an, an American ally, um, have been much more subtle than we. New Zealand, another example. The Europeans have been much more subtle. You take, you take India as a partner, not, not an ally of the United States. India, India believes right now it's in a sweet spot, being courted by the US and by China. And we'll return to India in a brief moment. But Professor Lawrenson, on the topic of trade deals, what are the implications for the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, which was entered into force on the 20th of December 2015 and eliminated the tariff on Bali back in 2015 and created a roadmap to end tariffs on Australian goods into China, including seafood and a variety of horticultural products, as well as obviously some of the major exports from the resource sector. So what does the current situation reveal about the free trade agreement? And are we stuck in a very compromising position should China decide to forego or simply ignore the terms of the agreement? No, well, so this is where we don't want to catastrophize because the reality is, is that the agreement was and is a huge success. I mean, today, Australian wine is getting into China with a zero tariff, while that from France and plenty of other countries gets hit with a minimum 14% tariff. So the China-Australia free trade agreement is still delivering. And the other thing that is important to keep in mind is that something Professor Carr mentioned before is that the approach China is taking to Bali, which I think is distinctly unhelpful, if there's one positive to draw from it, it is that it is being pursued under World Trade Organization consistent rules. In other words, at least now, Australia still has the possibility of taking China to the World Trade Organization to ask for an independent assessment of these issues. Now, that's a whole lot better than what is being proposed by President Trump. I mean, let's be clear. If you want to talk about weaponizing trade, there's nothing wrong with directing some of that talk at China. But 
there's another country that's weaponizing trade at the moment, and that is the United States. Let's just say that plainly. At the end of last year, the United States blew up the independent dispute resolution body at the World Trade Organization so that countries like Australia, which rely on rules to protect its interests, can't seek independent dispute resolution. Now, a very a positive development, we don't hear a lot about this, but a positive development in the Australia-China relationship this year is that both Australia and China have lent their names to a temporary substitute body. Uh, so this goes to the point, you know, we don't want to drift into this thinking that Australia and China are some, somehow have no, have, have no strategic alignment, that we're not friends, that we're enemies. I mean, in the case of international trade, I actually think that Australia's interests and China's interests, in broad terms, line up pretty closely. The uh, WTO's legal mechanism, the Dispute Settlement System, between 2002 and 2019, China was featured 21 times as a complainant and 44 times as a respondent. Would taking this to the World Trade Organization only heighten the tensions? Well, the statistics are very simple here. Uh, China's employed anti-dumping tariffs against Australia precisely once, and that was last week with Bali. Um, meanwhile, uh, we have nearly 20 anti-dumping tariffs levelled at China. Now, look, I'm not saying that Australia doing that is somehow, uh, you know, wrong or inconsistent. Uh, it could well be that the Australian government has very good reason to accuse China of dumping, for example, steel in the Australian market. But the point is, is that we have an independent dispute resolution body that China or Australia can go to to have those claims tested and adjudicated on. Um, that is the system that right now the United States is trying to blow up. And I think that's a major hit to Australia's interests. Um, and we need to be honest about that. No, I think, I think it's worthwhile reminding us of, uh, of this. Um, and, and also on the issue of diversification, I think that's something worth talking about. The, the Trade Minister... Uh, Simon Birmingham, who's been making uh, very, very cautious and sensible remarks on this whole front, um, said recently, we've got to diversify these, these disputes, confirm the need for us to diversify. Well, it's not as if, uh, just, just a, a warning there, diversification isn't a matter of pressing a button and all of a sudden our iron ore, our coal, our wine, our beef moves to different markets. That's not how it works. Trade goes where the demand is. And China is the country that's hauling hundreds of millions into its middle class, thus creating a demand for high value Australian exports. Yeah, so the point is, is that even if that plan works uh, just as we hope it does, and let's hope it does, um, our exports to India will still only be a fraction of what they currently are to China. Is India, as much as it is obviously a very viable consumer market, is there an issue arising from the fact that China may be far easier to trade with on the basis that it is a command economy? Is it just as viable a solution to be looking at Indonesia and India and some of these enormous consumer markets as a potential stopgap for a situation like we have now, where there seems to be tensions in the relationship between Australia and China? I wouldn't be looking to the nature of India's political system to explain why it won't emerge as a major trading, Australian trading partner like China is, it's Chinese consumers that want what Australia excels in producing. It's Chinese companies, steelmakers, for example, who want what Australian um, producers excel in making. Uh, and it's China's 
economy that has the purchasing power to pay for it. Uh, for me, one of the standout statistics in the Australian government's own 2017 foreign policy white paper was a baseline projection showing that out to 2030, China's economy would add more new purchasing power than the United States, Japan, India and Indonesia combined. Professor Carr, China will still have demand for coal into the foreseeable future in order to keep up with domestic demand for power until renewables are produced at a reasonable cost. But nevertheless, China remains the largest and most promising market for renewable energy, uh, although it is dominated by Chinese state-owned corporations. Now, China's renewable energy sector reportedly grew uh, in the first quarter of this year, according to the National Energy Administration, and in the January to March period, the China's installed capacity of renewable energy grew 8.4% year on year, according to that same data set from the NEA. So do you think it is possible for Australian companies to get a foothold in the Chinese renewable sector, or do you think that that will be closed off to private enterprise? Um, good question. I'm not sure. China has got for itself as the biggest as the biggest buyer of renewable energy a major uh, renewables manufacturing capacity. This is very good news for the planet. Ross Garneau, who's Australia's lead economist on climate change, said to me that the most optimistic thing about the global situation when it comes to climate, the most optimistic thing is the Chinese trajectory for renewables and away from coal after 2030. So that's an indication of how quickly they're moving. I would think if I were working for a major Australian-based coal exporter, I'd be, I'd be getting the best possible data it would be possible to find on the Chinese shift to renew renewables. We could reach a situation where just as European markets are saying no to thermal coal, so too will uh, those big markets of, of China and India. In an opinion piece that you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald on May 15th this year, you mentioned that while the world is focused on coronavirus, very quietly April saw an astonishing concentration of decisions by international corporations to ditch carbon. Uh, now, obviously, in Australia, the NAB and Commonwealth Bank have both made assurances that they'll exit the coal industry by 2030 and 2035, respectively. And the International Energy Agency released a report in April of this year suggesting renewables will be the only energy source to grow in value in 2020. So has the decision to go green become now a question of the bottom line as opposed to a broadly ethical stance? Yes, it is. It's, it's not driven by government policy. It's, it's driven by investors saying we don't want this risk. Now, in April, you had these decisions in just one month and in the middle of a virus and an economic downturn, the private sector is saying we won't, we won't invest in thermal coal. And a lot of other coal investments uh, have question marks over them. Only in April, you had two European countries announce the closure of their last coal-fired power plants. They were Sweden and Austria joining Belgium as countries that can say they're now coal-free. And a huge court decision in Holland, also in April, all these, all these major developments concentrated in April, um, a court decision, the biggest victory on climate that any jurisdiction has yielded up so far, uh, made a decision forcing the Dutch government to commit to closing one or two of its three coal-fired power plants. And at the same time, in April, you had Total and World Dutch Shell join BP in making announcements 
that they were that they they were signing up to the Paris targets, and that meant committing to renewables. Now these are these are colossal developments, and we in Australia are lagging when it comes to government acknowledgement. Now on the topic of Australian government policy regarding greener alternatives. Uh, Today, the Grattan Institute released a report on Labor's initial 2013 policy for bullet trains across the uh, east coast of Australia. Now, the Grattan Institute's report has found that, among other shortcomings, according to the report, an east coast bullet train would not be as climate friendly as many people thought. Do you have any thoughts on that article and and that particular report, Professor Carr? Yeah, well, I'd urge people to read Greg Moran's article in the conversation today, he says that according to the Grattan Institute's calculations, you'd have an increase in emissions because of the concrete and steel required to construct the line. And it would take 40 years of operation and then would be built in sections over about 30 years. I mean, that's, that, that time frame is very long, but it would need to be operating for 40 years before you'd see enough reduction, enough of a reduction in carbon through uh, use of rail rather than air to see a compensation for the huge quantity of carbon uh, generated by the construction. Mm, And would you say that particularly with that time frame that you've just mentioned, that this could be an example of political manoeuvring? Well, I I, I wouldn't say political manoeuvring. I just think political parties are drawn to big nation-building projects. We're all looking for a the dream of a, a second snowy mountain scheme does strike you that Australia has not got high-speed rail when every Chinese city is now linked with high-speed rail. But we stand out for a reason, the combination of long distances between the capitals and low population. If, dare I say, uh, something about Wuhan, not related to the virus, but if we had a population of 11 million the way uh, Wuhan has, then there's an economic compulsion to link it to other cities in the the Yangtze Basin. Um, It's a long way from Sydney to Melbourne, and each of our cities have got, in in the time frame we're looking at, populations of uh, 6 million, maybe 7 million, and the distances are far longer than the distances between major population centres in Japan or China. We'll quickly jump across to the situation currently underway in Hong Kong, which could have enormous impacts not only on the region, but globally. Now, many of us in Australia awoke to the news of unrest overnight in Hong Kong's Causeway Bay area. And last Thursday, the National People's Congress in Beijing proposed strict new security laws for Hong Kong, a move that, if passed by the uh, NPC, would effectively end, at least in the opinion of many critics, Hong Kong's one country, two systems state of semi-autonomy. Now, the proposed laws would, and I'll quote directly from the NPC's public statement, prevent, stop and punish any act to split the country, subvert state power, organise and carry out terrorist activities and other behaviours that uh, seriously endanger national security. So this question's for both of you. Could the Hong Kong we now know, a financial hub with a fervent democratic streak, be coming to an end? I think what is happening in Hong Kong at the moment can only be described as a tragedy. Uh, Look, on the one hand, uh, you would expect any national government, Hong Kong is part of Chinese territory, let's be clear about that, you would expect any national government uh, to be have a firm interest in not having terrorism, foreign interference, 
in their territory. That's what Australia's done as well. But you've obviously got to have real concerns about the way that law might be wielded. Um, the rule of law in China isn't applied as it is with the checks and balances and oversight, as it is in Australia. Uh, and the other point I'd make is that for all of the Chinese government's complaints about subversive foreign forces, uh, one thing that does seem pretty clear to me is that it is the Hong Kong population themselves who are the ones who are not at all enthusiastic about this law, and nor are many multinational businesses as well. Now, I think getting past this seeing the future the way we can deal with this uh it's it's fiendishly difficult and for that reason i think it's uh you know it, it's it's a real tragedy in the making at the moment yeah i agree i agree i think it's a tragedy i think china would have been better advised to have lived with a simmering level of protest uh, such as you've had since the middle of last year in hong kong uh, yes even with the behavior by provocateurs that has involved uh, the most regrettable violence uh, violence directed at innocent bystanders, uh, bystanders and police simply doing their jobs. I think we all have an interest, and China has an interest, in uh, two systems applying. Uh, Hong Kong continuing to be able to cleave to its system of an independent judiciary, for example. This, this intervention, which applies Chinese security law, to the to the daily life of Hong Kong is a retreat from the principle of one nation, two systems. And I say that while acknowledging the reality of Chinese sovereignty, but also acknowledging the, the appeal of the, uh, the agreement, 1984 agreement, um, the joint declaration, so-called, between China and the UK. Professor Carr, history has shown that words like terrorist or indeed the term provocateur can be used by regimes to impose blanket bans on any and all critics. Is it important to keep a close eye on the language being used, particularly by Western media and commentators when discussing the protests? Yeah, I, I think we've got to choose our language very carefully. There has been violence from a vanguard of demonstrators. Um, China in my view, would have, been, would have been able to have lived with containment of those demonstrations and police action under the existing law of Hong Kong, the territory of Hong Kong. Uh, that would have been, I'll use the word again uh, in a different way, that would have been less provocative to world opinion and would have been a more diplomatic and cautious positioning of Beijing. Um, so these are, these are all points that Australia is entitled to make to Beijing, although the fact that we've uh, allowed the relationship to deteriorate as we've done means that we, we're going to have trouble getting that view uh, communicated, uh, which one, one downside of allowing the relationship to drift over, over three years, as we have done, is that you can't communicate the firm messages about Wuhan, for example, and the origins of the pandemic, or about the undesirability of what the of what Beijing has just announced. I'd like I'd like there to be a, a decent, robust relationship where differences can be aired respectfully and forcefully. And regarding the reports that Trade Minister Simon Birmingham and Agriculture Minister David Littleproud have both been shut off from their Chinese counterparts, in your experience as obviously a foreign minister and premier and politician in general, is that a common occurrence in world diplomacy? No, it's very uncommon. And diplomacy exists, so, so you can avoid this coming about. Uh, we, should have been, we should have been more adroit in our diplomacy 
not just since the not not just this year, but since early 2017, when we we adopted a rhetoric on China designed, is my assumption, to impress the Trump administration and not to reflect Australian interests. Once again, it was the Australian instinct to impress Washington as a loyal gapping poodle, a, a deputy sheriff, instead of being a creative middle power respected by the United States because of our capacity for independent thought and able to have a dialogue with other countries, China included, but others on the list, liable to respect us more, liable to respect us more because they know we've got a capacity for independence. Now, in 2016, the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Peter Jennings, warned that if Beijing wants to adopt politically coercive policies, it's in a fairly strong position to do so with us being Australia because of that level of trade dependence. Now, what are your thoughts on that statement? And should we in the future be wary of becoming too reliant upon China for our export markets? Look, I think any Australian business would be wise to factor into their risk mitigation strategies the potential for themselves to be in the firing line uh, if China chose to use trade to retaliate against an Australian government political decision. So I think that's just sensible risk management. I guess my argument would be, though, that most Australian companies already monitor risk closely and they do the best they can. Um, It's their money on the line after all. So the reason that companies sell a lot to China is not because they don't want to sell to America or sell to India or Japan. The reality is is that it's China that wants what they have to sell. So of course it's sensible to explore opportunities for diversification. But I'm just telling you, the hardheads know that Indonesia and India are are not emerging as additional Chinas. And to quote one figure on India, Um, The Varghese report on Australian opportunities with India said that by 2035, if all goes well with Indian growth, we might be exporting 45 billion to India in 2035. Well, this year we exported, correct me if I'm wrong, James, uh, 160 billion to China. But if all goes well with India, we might just reach 45 billion in 2035. So diversification makes sense go all out for it. It's sensible precautionary policy. But China's generating the demand and the statistics from the Australian government confirm it. Our method of bursting onto the world's stage with all guns blaring has today drawn the ire of a former foreign minister. But as we look further afield to emerging economies like Indonesia and India to alleviate the importance of China's sprawling consumer market, it's still a long way off and abundantly clear that China is here to stay. COVID-19 may have upended the world's economies and shone a rarely seen light upon the flaws in globalised supply chains and export markets. But the Australian government should maybe consult the parliamentary copy of philosopher Sun Tzu's 5th century BC strategy guide, The Art of War. For in the midst of chaos, there is always opportunity. Thank you to today's guests, Professor Bob Carr and Professor James Lawrenson. Think Business Futures is produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. And as always, don't forget to listen in on the community radio network on 2SER 107.3 FM or on your favourite podcasting app. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Look forward to seeing you here next week.